future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Welcome, welcome. It is Monday, April 4th, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens, Out to Coop Live. Yes, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards from across the country. You can also join us at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And check out our once or twice monthly, The Wednesday Show with Cyril Michalako. Cyril, of course, is a progressive columnist for the Bucks County Courier Times and the Intelligencer and the new editor-in-chief of the Bucks County Beacon. He joins me to drill down into Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and international politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. And while you're over there, especially you're over there on a kind of Apple podcast or you know, leave us that five-star review. Give us a review that helps us people, that helps other people find our show. And you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and choose your membership level. You can also help out the show right now by heading on over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And you can join our Discord server to keep the conversation going all week long. Info on that is in tonight's show notes. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your live streams. Head on over to therigsmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And for those of you who are here earlier in the day, uh, we put out a special episode of Out to Coop Live with Rick Smith this afternoon talking about what is happening internally in the PA AFL-CIO. Do check that out um, for earlier um, today. And for more progressive talk in Pennsylvania on the west end of the state, you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast at Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And attention gamers, The Game In, that's with two N's. The Game In is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything from retro N64s to the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, and loads of collectibles and action figures and Funko Pops, literally walls of Funko Pops. And kids get a discount if they get A's on the report card, so get them on over there if they're gamers. Check out their Facebook page, follow them at Twitter at, at The Game In. Got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at @songadayman again with two N's, at songadayman on Twitter. Um, quick uh, show notes, uh, in addition to our Friday show of Politics Roundup, um, next Monday night at 7 p.m., we'll have Shanna Danielson on the show. Uh, you'll know Shanna. Shanna ran for state Senate and state house before she is a rabble rouser that we're going to talk about things that we can't even kind of include on a, a, a sheet of paper because it is so extensive. Um, so Shanna Danielson will be back on the show next Monday night and out to coop live at 7 PM. 
Now, on tonight's show, uh, I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time. On tonight's episode of Out the Coop Live, I welcome Dave Backer to the show. David is an associate professor of educational foundations, policy studies, and leadership at Westchester University. He writes a weekly newsletter called Schooling in Socialist America and tweets at at School Daves. That's like David Daves, School Daves on Twitter. Um, and definitely check out uh, his newsletter. It's fantastic. Um, the kind of serialized writing that goes on there, building a case about what's happening in kind of schools is just absolutely fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. So we'll be talking tonight about his recent article um, in Descent magazine called Toxic Finance. And that piece, David, looks into how outbreaks of COVID-19 in schools across the country expose the crisis in our schools' long-ignored infrastructure problems. But more than that, he shows how the way the United States finances school building improvements and maintenance worsened the problem. Another case of hiding the ball so students, teachers, staff, and parents get stuck with the inefficient, inadequate, and unequal schools. We'll also talk a bit about some recent proposals, such as the Green New Deal for public schools that would begin to take on the financial barons that are that profit off public ed- education for their personal gain. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. How are you? This is so great. Thanks for having me on. Longtime listener. Oh, you got it. You know, well, I, I was talking to you about a little bit this about before the show. I said, you know, this is one of these articles that falls right in kind of my lane, right? For yeah. spending years uh, in in the union and ABSCUF, um, kind of trying to track down how the university does its budgeting processes and mm-hmm. what's real numbers and what are fake numbers, um, and knowing the difficulty of doing that. Because look, you start telling talking people about spreadsheets and financial kind of data that normally puts people to sleep. Right. Um, That's right. But yet it becomes so critical. So before we jump into your article, can you talk a little bit about like what got you to this place? Right. Looking at this kind of financial backing in public schools. Yeah. So just the other day, actually, I was thinking a lot about this. I was giving a, like a guest lecture in a course on urban education and I was making my slides and I thought uh, I was with a with a, a co-presenter and we remembered that part in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, where Ben Stiller's going, you know, Bueller, Bueller. But he, what <clears throat> he's like the paragon moment of boring uh, is economics. He's talking about economics and written on the chalkboard behind him is monetary oh. policy and fiscal policy. Wow. And I hadn't seen that before. And I was like, yes, it's exactly it. But and this sort of starts to maybe answer the, your question about how I got into this. You know, I, you know, one thing I've realized is that things that are this complicated and things that are this boring it's not for nothing. It's not just an accident. It's not coincidental that it's hard to understand, it's hard to follow, and it doesn't catch your interest. These are the things, these are the kind of uh, apparatuses, the machinations that really guide the kind of resources that our lives are materially founded on. And the people who direct those don't have an interest in, in other people, in lots of people, um, knowing how this works. Um, and so the boring part of it, that feeling of just ugh, the, the Bueller, the the Ben Stiller vibe is, you know, it, it, it is a part of the weaponry. It's a part of the politics um, of how important these things are. And I think if there's been a through line in my research on education, it's been, you know, the projects that I've taken on, they've been pretty different. But one thing that I've realized they have in common is that I come upon something that seems to be kind of at the center of an issue or of a situation. And then I realize that it's really complicated and I can't really find clear accounts of it. 
um, just sort of laid out both in, in readable language, relatable language, but also critical, kind of left, um, left language. So uh, my, my first big project was on classroom discussion and exactly like how classroom discussion works and the ideology of it. And my second project was a kind of intellectual history of critical education. And um, in some ways, this project on school finance, it, it came about because I was teaching classes at Westchester a university where I teach um, on policy and law and education in a doctoral program. And um, I was just like, well, I've got this, you know, critical framework. I've been doing a lot of research into like Marxism and socialism and, you know, how to think about capitalism critically. Um, you know, it seems to me the most obvious thing to focus on would be schools and money and where the money is and how the money works. And, um, and what I realized was that particularly in critical pedagogy and critical education, it's like, we don't hear about that at all. Like the actual touch points of capitalism and education, the actual places where the money and the financing and, and, and all of how all of that flows, that's not what we hear about. What we hear about is how education reproduces capitalism, how curriculum you know, includes or excludes certain narratives, all of which is super important, right? Or pedagogically, uh, how the teacher you know, holds a certain kind of power or dominance in the classroom. Uh, but we don't actually hear about the direct relationship between the school district, let's say, or the school system and capitalism. So I didn't understand it myself. And I was like, well, I want to know. And um, it's been a few years now that I've been doing this. And it's just like, I also, the other part of the story is, I don't mean to go on about it, but no, please. Um, in my in my organizing, I, 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 take, I take organizing very seriously um, as part of my academic work, but also just part of being a human. Um, and... I think I wanted to do something in my next project that I knew could benefit the education justice movements, you know, in the region, in Philadelphia and in the region. And I really wanted to contribute um, as an intellectual and as an academic with resources and time to think about things. You know, I was thinking to myself, you know, what is it that people need to kind of know about? What is it that people would need someone who just has this time? Right. Um, to be able to find out. I also was in a situation as we were talking about before the show, I had a newborn, you know, and, and I couldn't do as much organizing as I'd been doing before. So how could I merge my organizing with my, uh, my research work? And, you know, as I think we're going to talk about, um, I had been involved since I mo we moved here, um, in the struggle around toxic buildings, um, and the big, uh, education justice coalition here, our city, our schools, um, which has been really powerful in the city, had been focused on that. And it's in the news every, almost every day, yeah. if not every week. And, you know, it was a pandemic in Philadelphia before the pandemic. You know, they were closing schools for health reasons in 2019, 2017, 2016. So I, and I, I asked myself, I was like, how does this work? Like, how does this even, what is it, if I was a dollar bill, how, <laughs> a how, do, I get, yeah. how do I get from, how do I get from, you know, the school district account into the pocket of the, the facilities construction contractors or from the bank to the, like, I don't even, does it come from the government? Is it like, <laughs> so, um, I and think I the thought, answer you know, is actually magic. It's magic. <laughs> yes, it is magic. I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, that's what Mark says in the commodity fetishism right. chapter. It's magical, um, to some degree, but also you, you ask the modern monetary theorists, you know, who are actually, uh, I've been engaging with a lot in, in conversation. I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm sort of in between. I'm not like a full on MMT person, but, 
Um, I'm fascinated then, by it in terms of what it yeah. opens up in terms of how we think yes. about this stuff. But yeah, that's right. It has it has proved and and the MMT kind of verse has really um, really provided so many resources and oases of thought for me in trying to understand this stuff from a critical point of view, particularly from an anti-austerity point of view. You know, right. so um, if you ask the MMT people, yeah, of course it's magic and it, it's a political magic. <laughs> um, yeah. It's fascinating. You know, I think a couple of things that when you were when you were talking about this stuff, you say, you know, what's that what's that place where all this stuff comes together? And as you were as you were saying that I was I immediately was taken back to the birth of the anti sweatshop movement when uh -huh. um, they were looking at kind of a, a very similar kind of approach to say, OK, what's the intersection between the clothing that I have with my school logo on it? How does that happen? What are the mechanisms for it? And what are the kind of international kind of intersection? And how do we then find a point of pressure? Right. That can help unravel that from the place that we're at. And I think exactly. this question of finance is very, very similar in that regard when we're talking about our public schools. Um, because yeah. until we can really get to where's that pressure point and stop it there. I mean, not that all the other organizing is not important. It's absolutely critical. It's so right. important. But this is one of those ones that um, we know what happens on Wall Street. I, and I love what you said about, you know, this is part of the infrastructure, part of the structure by which they keep us, you know, kind of in the dark on this. And I'm right. I think back to, you know, the 2008 crash mm -hmm. when um, I remember first hearing the word tranche. Oh, yeah. Right? And I'd be like, what the hell is that? What's a tranche? Right? Yeah. What the hell is a tranche? Uh -huh. And, you know, and then it tells you about how the how language works over time, too, as well, because now you find that word tranche showing up in kind of regular newscasts referring mm -hmm. to other things. And mm -hmm. then I'm taken back. This is I'm sorry, this is going off in a way other direction. That's... But I was, you know, taken back to um, a piece by CLR James kind of way, way back when he said yeah. the literature of America is business. Uh -huh. And I thought about wow. like that is kind of what is a national language that kind of forms an ideology kind of around this and then kind of moves through the culture. And, you know, I I can't help but think the way you just described this is the specialized language are like, you know, they're the monks. right? Exactly. <laughs> they're, they're the monks and we don't have access to that. Right. Because they are the mm -hmm. ones that can touch God, whereas the rest of us. Right. We get that eventually down the road once they've been able to move on to the, you know, the new gospel. Um, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. A couple of things come to mind as you're speaking. I mean, um, another part of the background of this project is I, my first big movement moment was Occupy Wall Street in the wake of that, that crash that you were talking about in 2008. And, um, you know, one thing that was so kind of amazing about Occupy was that it was this combination of very decentralized, almost anarchist uh, style organizing, taking on finance directly okay yep. and um and, and not only that but inhabiting the language and 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 in some ways you know a lot of the projects that we had you know we took the term occupy and really played with it and in some ways we were taking it for ourselves right we were we were going to their place at wall street and we were just staying there and we were going to look around and we were we were just going to be really annoying about it um and it brought me back to a memory of some work that we'd done where I was doing a, um, it was actually it was called a pedagogy workshop as part of an Occupy University project in New York City. And we were in Trump Tower in the privately owned public space at the bottom of Trump mm -hmm. Tower. And um, one of the texts that we had for discussion was um, Carl Levin's report on the financial crisis, a Senate re report, you know, that he had um, 
that he had commissioned. And yeah. we just tried to understand this stuff. And exactly, like, just like you're saying, like the, the language of counterparty and the language of, um, of interest rate and, um, and bond and security and derivative and, and these things. Um, and so the, so that's there in the background too. I, I have a sort of knack or pension or tendency to want to focus on that from Wall Street because that's what we did in, in Occupy. Um, but the other thing I thought of too was that, and this maybe moves us forward in the conversation, maybe the, the, um, the gap in the school, in a school district, um, and the way that financing works, particularly when it comes to school buildings for capital expenditure, uh, there is that gap that exists, not just among the sort of uh, citizenry, the parents, the students, the teachers, the community members, but the school leaders themselves, the principals, the district officials, the assistant superintendents, the superintendents, they don't know a lot about this stuff either. It's right. not exactly part of their in-depth training to be a school leader, not to mention the school board members. Um, and so when something comes up, they just look to their business officer who maybe also isn't um, is super it hasn't been super inside municipal finance or even finance speak and they'll listen to the financial advisors who are who are for profit um, totally inside this for profit system and they just listen to them and there's actually a knowledge gap that exists deep within that uh, school district um, arc, like uh, uh, apparatus that leads to all kinds of weird things including. Things like um, between, uh, you know, in the late 1990s up until 2008, a lot of school districts, including in Pennsylvania, but all over the country, they just, they, they, there were snake oil salesmen going around selling swaps, selling derivatives to the school districts. Yep. And um, the school districts were just like, yeah, I would love to save a million, two million, five million dollars um, every year if we could do some kind of complex financial instrument that the Wall Street cats like, you know, because they're, obviously legitimate, unquestioningly legitimate. Right, and I just read this article in the New York Times about how now they're, they're hiring physicists, right, to do this, so they must be smart. Exactly, they must be smart, and what they say must go. And, and so these people are talking about things like swaps and derivatives. The school district of uh, the Chicago Public Schools lost $100 million wow. in 2008. It, it completely tanked their school modernization project because they were so, um, they were so deep in this swap stuff and who was who was uh, deep in the school districts uh, in Chicago after that? A guy named Paul Vallis. And who was the superintendent in Philadelphia in the early two thousands? Paul Vallis. So like this, there there's this kind of connection. Um, and he the way that he you know he, he wasn't um, he wasn't participating in this finance system in a very good way either. He's he was taking out huge bonds and very complicated uh, derivative type products, and only building new schools, but not but deferring the maintenance. And uh, yeah, I don't know if that's getting ahead of ourselves. No, but. no, no. That's great. That's great. So let's get us let's let's get us to kind of like the financing itself. Because one of the things I, yeah. I like the way you start off this piece, right? You kind of give us that this picture is like, look, there were school strikes that were happening across the country, which I think we forget. And I, I, I this is again I, not to get us on another sidetrack here, but I, I mean I think that it's interesting as I was kind of reading this piece, I kept thinking, yeah, what if we actually read the COVID crisis through student response and student organizing, right? What would yeah. that look like in terms of the picture and the narrative and the story? But, and that's, that, that's for another conversation. Um, but, but, but you start out with that student organizing who were saying, no, this is not okay. We're not going back into those buildings like this. Like we can barely breathe. I'm thinking about Reading, Pennsylvania, right? Yes. Literally snow would be coming in through the windows throughout the mm -hmm. wintertime before COVID. 
Right. And then COVID and the hits. windows aren't opening. You're concerned about the ventilation, exactly. airborne virus. Your windows don't open. You know, and just just a point about that student organizing. I think one of the tactics I've been using in my research to make this not boring is to always root it in movements. So like whenever we're talking about school finance, let's talk about the movements because those movements are actually reacting to and trying to push back on many of the um, the forces that are being exerted from the financial realm. But yeah, 100%. So let's get us to, let's start in then kind of like, like the where you start us, right? You're looking at the HVAC systems and right. you're looking at say windows and really just that, even that distinction between like the capital projects, right? And then mm -hmm. your general operating funds. So That's like, right. get us into that space where we're kind of seeing how this is working out in our, just, you know, kind of in our schools down the street, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, this this distinction in accounting that you mentioned is actually really one of the first things that I sort of like learning about these complex systems. And I like I studied like uh, philosophy, of math and logic in undergraduate, which is weirdly maybe also why I'm drawn to these numbers. Um, but like there are these basic distinctions that once you just sort of get familiar with using them, they suddenly become helpful in structuring the situation. And one of them is just like what you've said, which is the difference between capital expenditure and operating expen expenditure or, or, or operating expense. And um, so like, uh, and, and really, um, this is a difference in time and um, how, how time works. So if you think about, and I know that MMT people, you know, hate this an analogy, <laughs> but if you think about your own expenditure, you know, just as an individual, you have different kinds of times when you need to spend on different kinds of things. So um, every, you know, every week you need to buy groceries. Okay, fine. Every month you need to pay rent or your mortgage. Um, every, every so often you need to, you know, buy, buy new clothes. You got to put that gas in your car every week. Okay. These are regular expenditures, right? And you, you, you budget them just the way you budget them. You have your income and, and you spend them on that. Okay. But every once in a while, there are some really big expenses. Um, and you let's say put a you roof get, on your house, right? Or you need, house need a, needs a new roof. You, you want to buy a house. You want to get married. For kids, <laughs> right? You got to get. You got want to get more education, right? Your kids need to go to college. You need to get a, a higher education. You, um, whatever. Okay. So in this moment, like you can't use the same budgeting that you use for your regular stuff, right? You can't. You can't use your just sort of monthly or biweekly wages to think about like, okay, um, I'm going to pay for uh, four years of university or I'm going to pay for my wedding. You just can't do it. Okay. So, so what that means is that you need a lot of resources upfront to be able to do the thing that you want to do. Um, and obviously you're not just going to get those resources upfront because we don't live in the society we should. Right. Um, <laughs> and so how do you get what you need all that capital, we call it capital, all those resources in a capitalist economy, how do you, how do you get them? We have a loan. And a loan is when someone says, oh, okay, I'll give you that money, but, but it comes with a cost. It comes at a price. You have to pay me back with interest. Um, and that's the only reason they would ever get in on this deal is if you were going to pay them back with interest, right? The interest is just the cost of that money, except for instance, if you're getting married and you get like a, a, a sort of permanent loan from your parents or, 
or money comes in if you're lucky enough. But um, so let, let, me, this, let me stop you yeah. there real quick, because I think this yeah. you, you kind of alluded to this, but this is a really important point about, say, not living in the society that we should, because yes. that moment right there, when you say we can anticipate, right, it's not that these costs are surprises, right? I mean, these are things exactly. that we know that are going to have to happen at some point down the road. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about mm -hmm. maintenance, if you're talking about infrastructure, those right. things are going to have to be invested. So there's a there's a choice that is made about whether we as a society are collecting, say, taxes, right, or other means in order to do this, or the choice that we've made is say, no, we are going to give that to the private sector for profit purposes. And that's how it's going right. to get managed. So that's Everyone, a, that, that baseline yeah. choice is at the core of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's an ideological choice. Uh, it's a sociopolitical choice that um, are, are derivations of ideological uh, and intellectual positions that are kind of in, you know, what we t commonly think about, you know, as these larger kind of tectonic shifts in how we think about economics, you know, we talk about something like neoliberalism, usually what we're, what we mean is this post new deal um, kind of way of thinking where we're not in, we're not, our social contract is such that everyone's just sort of hustling, um, as Lester Spence would say, like, that, that it's not about um, what we can provide the collectivity um, by uh, let's say redistributing um, where resources might pool up unequally or, you know, taxing uh, and redistributing, let's say, is just an example. Um, actually, everyone's just out for themselves and that's the best way to do things. And in this very case, just like you're talking about, um, it happens and it's the school districts. The only thing about the schools, and, and so like the, this, this thing about spending that I was giving as the example yep. When you have to go get a loan, for instance, if you get a loan, you tend to have to go um, to some source of credit um, to be able to get that loan. It tends to be big private banks, right? Um, and those big private banks are doing all kinds of business um, in private markets. And there's a whole market, the credit market. And this is a market that exists uh, like all uh, finance as on Wall Street, as we, as we say it kind of um, colloquially. And, you know, we, you, you want to think to yourself, public schools, and this is one thing that kind of gets me studying about finance, like even the progressive and the left side, we think public schools are, public schools are such a, it's a public good and we fund them publicly and they're free and, um, you know, it's being marketized and privatized and neoliberalism, but, but that's the threat. It's only, it's, um, you know, there's a new book at the uh, Wolf, at, Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. It's a great book, um, Jack Snyder and, and Jennifer Berkshire, who I really like. But when I've been studying school finance, particularly school buildings finance, you realize that the Wolf House has been in residence. Like there, the, and it, there was never a neoliberalism. Like there was never a Keynesian social democratic New Deal period when school buildings were somehow financed publicly in a way in which did not create the situation of the school district needing to commodify itself, sell itself on the market as a product. Um, that is sort of punitively rated by credit for-profit credit rating agencies. And, um, and like when I'm talking to school officials, business officials who have to do the borrowing that will finance getting the elementary kids the roof over their head, mm -hmm. getting them the water fountains they need, making sure the asbestos isn't in the building, making sure the windows open. What they say is, I have to go to market and I'm selling my school district. Um, that's the way that they this works. They use that and language. Literally, wow. literally. And um, because that is that is quite precisely what they're doing. It's and in some cases, sometimes on the left, we can use this metaphorical language and stuff. But actually, this is actually what they're doing. They are going to a private credit market that has 
assessed the creditworthiness of their school district according to certain kinds of um, points about the region's political economy, specifically its tax base, that is to say, the value of its property, uh, both commercial and, and uh, industrial, residential, it, within its boundaries. So like whenever I'm driving through suburbs and I see a shopping mall, I, I completely think totally different things than I used to. I don't, I don't see like a, I don't see like a Nike store or whatever. I'm thinking, wow, they, wow, they got, they got some revenue there. They can work with. Um, it's like, so, so the, the credit ratings, you know, the credit rating agencies, they'll say, okay, this is a school district that has high property values um, and has a good amount of real estate that it can tax to be able to fund itself, which means that they'll pay back the loan if they take it out. So we'll give them a high credit rating, which means they get a lower interest rate, which means that they can save more money. But um, if you're a district like Philadelphia, um, these credit ratings agencies are looking at you and the investors are looking at you and they're like, literally, and I, I kid you not, and I don't know if people know this, but in the municipal, in the bond market, not just municipal, but in the bond market generally, you have two, at least two kinds of bonds. <laughs> One is they call um, investment grade and the other one is junk it's a junk they call it junk they literally and call so it we junk. have a situation in the country and it's not since the 1970s it's not as though everything changed with reagan it's always been this way that we treat our school districts that tend to have the most people of color the most working class people the poorest people literally categorized as junk and um what that does is it means that it is more expensive for them to get those loans that they need to be able to do the things for their kids so that the kids don't get sick from the water, from the lead in the water or from the asbestos in the, so that the air can flow so that they don't have to breathe COVID or, or whatever else is in the air. And, um, you know, this, uh, this way of financing school buildings and I, if I ramble, I'm sorry, but the, 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 the school building to me has starting is starting to emerge as like a, it's like a, a boundary object in, capital, in, in American capitalism. What do you do with a school building? You can't treat it like private real estate because you don't, it doesn't operate as a, as a um, it doesn't create the same kind of concrete material immediate wealth that any kind of other piece of property might. Um, you, can't, you can't pay rent necessarily. I mean, you can, but what you're, you're producing isn't necessarily immediately com commodifiable uh, which is, you know, people <laughs> and their educations. And so um, how have we dealt with this? We've dealt with it by just like shunting them off to the side, rarely thinking about it and treating them as though they're any other old business that needs a loan. Um, well, and the point that you make in the piece there too as well, when you're talking about these industrial grade um, bonds, right? Exactly. They are yeah. far more risky than the municipal That's bonds right. or the so-called junk bonds, right? So the, because the ones that are school districts, the one for school districts or municipal bonds, those ones get paid back, <laughs> right? Well, and yes. Where these other it's, ones it's, frequently, right, will default yes. or they're late and default. all this. And yet it right. does not correspond to interest rates. It does not correspond with kind of lending practices. It is it's completely the anti-market built into the market. Yeah, it's like this, um, to me, and, you know, as a, as a socialist, it's like, in, in some ways, another part of this project that I'm doing is to kind of make the case for socialism using something extremely concrete, <laughs> which is that the economic system that we have literally lets school buildings fall apart and doesn't care. And, and so when you have a system that would permit that to happen, yeah. 
one has to start asking oneself about it. Um, and the, the, that's exactly right what you said, because it, it, when, you have, um, when you have a junk bond, it's more expensive and it's harder to get. But I think this, this shines a light on the sort of investor side of the story that I haven't gotten to necessarily. I've been sort of talking from the school district mm -hmm. side. There's a whole other part of this, which is the investor side. Now, um, there's a book called American Bonds by Sarah Quinn, which is really good. And sh she makes this case that um, credit is a form of state making in the United States when you have the kind of federalized local, state, federal government. And when you have a, a population that's kind of drunk this local control Kool-Aid um, and any form of what could be thought of as centralized um, administration is seen as tyranny, you have to use things like credit to be able to get things done as a state. And um, I think the school uh, the school bonds are exactly like this. So um, the way that this country has come has decided uh, and the way we continue to decide to finance school buildings that our kids go to is um, we have incentivized wealthy investors to front the money through the banks as go-betweens for the loans that the school district needs to maintain, maintain its buildings. The way that we incentivize that is by making the interest payments that those investors I, receive non-existent. Or non-existent for the, oh, for them. They're not, they're non-taxable. That is to say, if you're, okay, and and so the public public finance network has a primer in public infrastructure finance and they this one of the statistics I think the most about is that of all the of all the municipal bonds or public public bonds, the highest percentage goes towards education. Twenty eight percent of all of all these bonds go towards education. I think that number is from twenty twelve to twenty seventeen, um, and the majority of people who hold these bonds are sixty five plus retirees, who are who have more a million dollars or more in wealth. So um, like the reason why they see this as an investment is because just to give you an example, if, if you put a hundred dollars in statistically speaking, you put a hundred dollars into one of these municipal bonds that's going towards the school district and the interest rates 5%, you make back 105, right? Mm -hmm. The $5 that you make there, the government takes none of it. It's not taxable. They don't tax it. So, um, <laughs> these, these wealth, these ruling class people who are putting their money old ruling class people, like a gerontocracy type right, of right, capitalism. Right. They, they, you know, oh via, via their, um, their investments uh, banks, which I've learned recently, Vanguard Group owns 12% of school bonds. So like they, the Vanguard, I didn't, that was surprising to me. I mean, BlackRock, uh, Bank of America, um, you know, RBC, all the heavy hitters are in the top 10, but Vanguard's at the top. And, um, you know, so essentially they can make tax-free investment returns in situations meanwhile the buildings fall apart so that I, I contrast that statistic with the american society of civil engineers who give school infrastructure in the united states a d plus d plus and have given it d plus the last five years so take, yeah take us into a little bit well i mean i don't I want you to finish your point but take us into so sure. what that means what that d plus because i thought when well, you're getting into what a D plus means, what these evaluations yes. of the percentages of kind of falling apart infrastructure looks like that brings yeah. us right down to this, to the ground floor. Yeah. So, and, and, um, you know, the American civil society of engineers is just one, just one metric, but there's, 
a whole tradition over the last couple decades of, um, I would say, limited research studies on the policy side of the situation. I think that school buildings, their, their facilities and their, their general situation is an understudied, under-talked about situation generally. Um, but what the, what the ASCE does is every year they have a team of about 30 engineers. And those engineers do in-depth interviews across the country at, at the state level and, um, about the situation of the public infrastructure in that state. And they assess um, the condition of that public infrastructure using documents um, and interviews with the infrastructure professionals at the state level. They calculate the amount of facilities, infrastructure that needs to be done, that should be done and then calculate how, like the relationship of what needs doing versus what, what should be done, and then they grade accordingly. So if, if you have a high grade, that means that you're keeping up with what needs done, right? Like your infrastructure's in pretty good shape, like there's not a lot of backlog, you're investing what you should be given the condition of your infrastructure. But if you get a low grade, you're falling behind. So um, overall, I think the United States gets a C um, and certain states are okay. Uh, shockingly, there's a sort of state by state uh, diversity when it comes to school buildings. But overall, the United States gets this D plus. So I hold these, these these two things out to myself, and like if I'm tweeting, I'm always talking about this. It's like, okay, on the one hand, you're saying that the municipal bonds, almost thirty percent of them go towards school bonds, and um, and that mostly there's just these uh, sort of uh, investors, millionaires making money off of these bond deals, and you want that to happen. Okay. But on the other hand, the school buildings get a D plus from the engineers. And not only that, but every, you know, most research port reports that I could find from my article, it's the same deal. School buildings are falling apart. School buildings fall apart. Um, if you'll just remind, permit me one last like yeah, association, one example of this is the most egregious that I've found in the history is um, one of the things that's gotten state governments to do more for school facilities is when they go to court. It's like the old civil rights strategy, essentially. Um, you take the, which Pennsylvania just did. I was going to say, this has just happened right here. Just yeah. happening in Pennsylvania, right? Um, and like all, all praise goes to the Education Law Center and, um, and using the litig litig lit litigious path, you know, to figure this out. 100%, yeah. Um, like the story from Ohio. So Ohio had one of these cases. A lot of states have these cases. And um, they did a survey of the school buildings in Ohio. And there was one school building in Ohio, and we're talking the 90s here. This, is, this isn't like the 1890s, we're talking the 1990s. The school building was sliding downhill. The entire building was moving downhill about an inch a year. Um, it's not, just I mean, it's like, I'm like laughing and like, it's not funny, this. but it's like, you cannot believe this is going on, right? It's absurd. Okay, the school building's moving downhill. It's falling down the hill. And, and the, uh, wait, question, the, the, the questions at the school board were like, well, is it go how fast is it going? I mean, is it really like, is it, well. I mean, is, it, is it a problem? Is that, yeah, the kids are not getting whiplash or anything, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Sorry. But like, yeah, it, it's la you have to laugh. Wow. Um, it's so absurd. But, you know, but it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's so dangerous. Um, it's so dangerous. But, but we continue with this financing system. And, um, you know, I, I really hope... Uh, I hope we can do something about it. I have found I have found things, you know, policies that I think could be better. But uh, yeah.
I don't know. No, wait. And, no, really. Like what we're looking at here, too. I want to go. I just want to kind of hit some of these numbers for here. There, you yeah. in your article, you're kind of mentioning this. So, what does this mean? So, yes, you've got a D plus from the um, American Society of Civil Engineers. The mm -hmm. uh, the Government Accountability Office, yeah. right, reports right. fifty four percent of schools need to update or replace multiple building systems, and a full third of HVAC systems require updating or repairing. These right. school infrastructure inequalities are racialized and class inflected. In 2014 report found that 33% of schools serving low income students had ventilation infrastructure issues versus 27% of wealthier schools. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of this, you talk about like the, your elementary school. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, can you talk about the numbers on that is like what we're talking about, a local elementary school, about the amount of money that is going to be required just to address those issues. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I focus on common G's, which is our catchment elementary school in Philadelphia. And catchment just means that there's a public school with lines around it and people within those lines. That's your public school that you can go to no matter what. But in Philadelphia, it's largely a marketized kind of school district where you can kind of choose. But um, yeah, so at Comages, like it's it's an example of it's an example of the kind of projects that this kind of project. So I think I focus on ventilation a lot because of the pandemic. Right. Um, but uh, so for Comages to get a new HVAC system, it's a I I believe I have to well, look at the number. Right it's a, it's a two million dollars, right? So in 2017, they had an independent facilities analysis in the Philadelphia school district, found that the schools in the school district need $4.5 billion in deferred maintenance. That's deferred maintenance. So that's stuff that's in the backlog, not stuff that's right up in front of us, but stuff that needs doing that hadn't been doing. That's um, that's a billion and a half. It's about billion dollars more than the yearly school budget total. Um, it's only about, it's only a billion and a half less than the total P Pennsylvania Department of Education budget. <laughs> Um, wow. so like, wow. uh, so Comages is just, you know, one, one of a number of schools that need a $2 million HVAC system. And here's the thing, there's no quick fix here. So like HVAC systems take a long time to replace yeah. and it's a very material intensive process. You need all kinds of contracts and all kinds of firms and all kinds of materials to do it. And so far as I can tell, the HVAC system still needs to be updated. There's still two millions of dollars, two million dollars that needs doing over there at Comages, and and the school district hasn't gotten to it. Why hasn't the school district gotten to it? There's a lot of reasons why, and you can't you can't necessarily say like, well, it's not the school district's fault at all. Um, I mean, I think obviously there's a lot that can be wrong with school districts, and if the school district of Philadelphia has problems and. I think accountability, you need accountability and you need revenue. Those, that's the magic combination in school finance. But, but I don't understand how we're supposed to expect a school district to be able to finance right. what needs doing when it needs to be done with the economic system that we have, with the, with the financing system we have for school buildings. It, 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 it would be impossible. It has been impossible. Um, so so Common G's, my, my, my local school, sits there with its old ventilation system in the pandemic and everyone's saying, okay, let's go back. Let's open things up. David Leonhard, the New York times, everyone's saying, open the schools, open the schools back to normal, back to normal. And meanwhile, here we have an airborne disease um, uh, affecting a population, some of whom are not yet within the range of the vaccination, right? We don't have approved vaccinations for the kids at the youngest grades. They want them to go back into the building and the air is not circulating. 
and um and it's yeah it's uh that's that's sort of what inspired me to write the piece in the first place well i want to read this piece here and then i want to talk about what we can do uh like what are some of these options that could be on the table this is uh one sure. thing for your article too as well and i, I apologize everybody we're reading a little bit much with it but i think this is really good this brings us back to some of the student pushback here this is uh um kind of the letter press so after talking about the credit you know the differences between your property values and all this it says uh, in 2020, Pennsylvania students highlighted this um, disparity when they marched the four miles from Overbrook High School in West Philadelphia to Lower Marion High School just over the district border. Lower mm -hmm. Marion spends about $12,000 more per student than Philadelphia does. Lower Marion student population is 81% white, while Philadelphia's district is 35% uh, white. Philadelphia's credit rating, according to Moody's, is a BA3 just above what bond markets like to call junk, which we've talked about. Lower Marion's is at a AAA investment grade. Before the pandemic, Lower Marion schools ventilations um, exceed standards, um, and they were further updated with advanced technologies such as MERV-13 filtration and bipolar ionization. And here's the kicker, Philadelphia schools got window fans. Right. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. So if the roof holds up <laughs> through the winter, Right. Your bonus is that, well, at least you got a window fan. To air out the <laughs> yeah. Thing. I mean, this I mean, is what we're talking about. That's right. And, and Laura Marion can afford to do that. They have they have an extremely high property tax base. Um, and and you know what? I don't want to knock the more I read about Laura Marion, the, the less I want to like knock them, you know, because we're in a bad system. And actually, they're doing some things that are are actually kind of positive um, within that system. But um, we, we have to note that, like, um, they they have the tax base and the credit rating to be able to finance their schools in a way that they can have these advanced filtration methods and keep their kids safe. Philadelphia doesn't. The racial dynamics are there. Everyone knows what's going on. You ask anyone in Philadelphia, and you, and particularly parents, teachers, students, you, you go to Lower Marion, a lot of them probably moved from Philadelphia um, because they were like, well, it came time to have my kids go to school. Yep. And um, and that's 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 racial capitalism working, you know, turning. And, and I think actually this particular idea about the good school moving to get to schools is one of like, it's, we're talking about sort of weak links in the chain, so to speak, you know, this is really one of them in, in US racial capitalism in terms of moving to go to get schools, which is all wrapped up in real, in the in real estate and, um, and the school district lines and local politics and the, the absence of the federal government uh, because of, because of that court case from 19 in the 1970s and, um, it's like exactly right, right. And so what that means concretely is that the kids in Philly get, get literally, these are like plastic window fans in plywood that were put into windows. And it was sort of an, it was a big, it was a big story, you know, because it was sort of a symbol, you know, to everyone that like, we don't have what we need. We don't, we don't get what we need and other people do. And we have to think about like why that is. No, and I remember, I remember actually there were some videos that came out um, during that time where parents were basically parents and teachers were coming in with box fans, and like building these kind of like ad hoc like you know um, uh, HEPA filtration systems by putting right. four box fans and some like you know furnace filters on them and taping them with duct tape to get mm -hmm. them to work. I mean, I'm like. There you go. And yeah. I think one other point about the Marion, the, 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 like the Marion School District is one of the, here's a perfect, or Lower Marion is like one of the perfect examples of this is like, even if in the best case scenario, Lower Marion School District are doing great, say really good stuff, right? At the education mm -hmm. level, at the distribution level, accessibility level and all that. 
because of the overarching structure, you keep the antagonism, the racial antagonism, the class antagonism always there, even in the best intention system, which is one of the reasons why, again, this is where you kind of begin to point us to is directions that we need to go, right? Or at least begin finding some way to begin getting around certain pieces of legislation or certain significant changes. And you point to a couple of them um, toward the end of your piece. One of them, which I know you're involved in, you're talking about the Green New Deal for public schools. Um, And the other one, I'm going to get this wrong because I was like, this is where I learned about it for the first time. Um, was the uh, the independent the National Investment Authority independent That's National right. Investment Authority? Can you tell us about these two things? First, the Green New Deal for public education um, uh, for public schools. What that's about, and how this would begin to chip away at some of this. Yeah, great. So, so the Green New Deal for schools um, is uh, most concretely um, a piece of legislation that Representative Jamal Bowman um, out of New York introduced during the budget reconciliation process uh, in the last budget cycle around, you know, everyone was talking about Build Back Better and, um, mm-hmm. and, and that plan. And his team introduced that legislation that was actually crafted by a team of um, organizers, researchers, um, academics that wrote a report called uh, K-12 Schools, a, a green, I think it's Green Stimulus for K-12 Schools. It's actually out of the University of Pennsylvania Climate um, and Community Project led by Professor Akira Drake uh, Rodriguez, who's a great um, friend, resource, just an uh, amazing person, who uh, urban planner, uh, academic, who thinks about all these things. And um, I worked like as a sort of minor player on that team to think about money um, and how financing would work. And the initiative behind the Green New Deal for schools is it kind of like, what's nice about the Green New Deal framework in this sort of uh, like another younger kind of generation of environmentalists um, has been to kind of think how good would things be if it were good in a way, like how, what can, how can we take this infrastructure problem that we have and make it amazing, make things amazing. Um, And here's what I mean. Like the way that this translated to me in terms of the schools is like, um, what if at Comagees, for instance, or at any school, you know, in in the district of Philadelphia, you had over over a summer, let's say, massive construction project, okay? And sure, it'll be like noisy and maybe disruptive for the neighborhood, but like people who are going to that school, parents who are sending their kids there, parents who are thinking about where to send their kids, teachers who work there, like neighbors, um, people who have gone there before are thinking about where they're going to move or, or let's say, they see that the school is getting new infrastructure. And not attention only that, it's getting attention, and, and not only that, but people from the area are working there and they have solid, like unionized trade jobs. And not only that, but the technology that we're putting into this school is zero emission. School buildings and buildings in general are huge carbon emitters. Yep. We tend to think about planes and cars and stuff, but, but buildings are huge emitters. And actually there's a guy named Daniel Aldana Cohen, who's also another friend and colleague who does great work on housing and, and, um, and the Green New Deal. And he sort of actually uh, connected me and, and pulled me into a lot of this stuff, which I'm really thankful for. School buildings are another one of these buildings that are huge emitters. And so we have this huge problem of carbon emissions. It's, it's changing the climate. Like we can make our schools really nice. We can make them really safe. We can employ a lot of people in doing that. We can create a sense of like hope and excitement in our community that we have something to be proud of. And we can, we can prevent more carbon from going in 
to the uh, atmosphere all at the same time. Um, and that's the vision of the Green New Deal for schools, right? And it's it's just so, I almost like tear up, I'm thinking about it because it's it all we have all these problems, but here's a way of of working on them. And, and so we had this piece of legislation and it called for massive tax grants um, that were actually based around equity uh, in, at, at the regional level um, to be able to invest in this. You know, we're, we're talking in the order of hundreds of billions of dollars um, because that's the need, right? right. And so um, it, it failed. <laughs> you go for that piece of legislation, right? Um, and, you know, one thing that's sort of interesting that I heard, it's sort of a rumor, but I heard that there wasn't as much excitement in the budget reconciliation process in general, not just Green New Deal, you know, you know, the moderates and the Republicans, they put up those posters with like Ronald Reagan on a dinosaur shooting later. They think it's all crazy. But <laughs> but like um, just 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 the idea of there's been federal legislation um, to try and rebuild the America's schools, um, you know, sort of sitting there, not passing. And this round, it seemed like maybe there was some hope that it would get through and we'd get more money for our school buildings from the federal level. But uh, what I heard was that in the process of negotiating the American Rescue Plan funds, people were bitter, quote unquote, about how much money schools got Jesus in that deal Christ. and didn't want to go through it, didn't want to give schools more in the budget reconciliation process. So we didn't get the money for school buildings there. But just a footnote about that, people say, oh, what about the American Rescue Plan? The federal government just paid you so much money. At the school district level, like when it comes to facilities projects, but also other things. This money only lasts for four or five years. So, and it's only in a certain amount. School District of Philadelphia is only doing $325 million of ARP money on school facilities. $4.5 billion of need and deferred maintenance, okay? That's just a, an order of magnitude um, difference. So, so the green, and the Green New Deal for schools also part of that vision is that, and also the National Investment Authority, frankly, um, is to get a more active federal government. We, we need to rely on the federal government for intervention here. Um, I have some more state and local uh, ideas, but I, they didn't make it into that piece. No, but I think um, like, you know, I look at it really, and I, you know, the vision I use actually even with my own students too, when we're talking about kind of working from the ground up, instead of starting looking at the problem, like here's this big problem, take say climate change, right? And think about how do we change like the global climate? What if we start at this local basis? And I was like, well, if you want to put solar panels someplace, I don't know. Where might you find a lot of flat space that's in the sun all day long? Right? You know, it's like, oh, the building that we're in, every school in every school district and across the country, right? Mm -hmm. This is like space. And not only could that be, like you said, like the driver for jobs and community involvement, but it could be a net generator of clean energy for the community, exactly. right? I mean, it's like, mm -hmm. this is kind of like, like you said, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that make that gives me that hope when you can see it so concretely acting right, right down the street from you right and and you know the, the cool thing about this moment i know that there's so much heavy and depressing and hopeless you know about this moment but i think we are really generally in in, in this kind of you know what they call an interregnum or like it, this period where it's not really clear what the hell's going yeah um and there are very dramatic shifts that happen that feel tectonic and I know that, and I know one way in which this kind of it takes everyone by surprise. It's shocking. It's it's sort of depressing. And now we have more access to more information than we ever have. But at the same time, things can tectonically shift the right way. And um, there is a lot of, for me, uh, you know, I think actually there's a lot of talk about how the left is weak. The left is weak. Actually, you know, we've never had more purchase in in state power. Right. 
um, in a hundred years. So, um, and you know, one of the one of the reasons you know that is because these conversations happen. Actually, there is legislation that was issued. Of course, it wasn't voted in yet, but you know what the Progressive Caucus at the federal level was able to do in trying to negotiate for Build Back Better. I know that didn't work in the end, but at least there was some leverage. You know, there hadn't been leverage. So. I'm I'm kind of waxing. Uh, no, no, but here, I think but... that I think the point there too is like what we've seen. I I th we've talked about this on the show quite a bit over the over like over the years. What you've seen this gradual move towards is away from just the strictly ideological battle, which I think the left was locked in for a long time, to mm -hmm. this kind of you know okay we're going to move and we're going to talk about and moving this into an act in a powerful like to take power to do this right so you're looking at actual legislation and having coalitions that are built in communities in order to make that happen right i mean it's not like rejection of ideology it's more like saying we have a we have a different kind of organizational base right now that right. has everything to do with the you know in community organizing that's been done by groups like dsa that's done with right. women like the women's march indivisible all over the kind of broad kind of say map of the of the you know the broad left right Intent, but yeah. people getting that sense of you know what can win and I'm, I'm struck by you know we interviewed noam chomsky way back in the day when we were first getting rolling a raging chicken and one of the things that he always pointed to was the idea that people need to be able to they need to win you need mm -hmm. to have the wins. And so we talked about some of the biggest movements like sometimes happen by organizing a community to get a stoplight put at an intersection where a number of children have been killed Mm -hmm. Right. That you have a collective process of problem solving where it's actually benefiting. They can see the results of their action. I'm always thinking about this, too, as well. For for years, I don't know if this is still the case, but for years, construction workers, for example, had one of the lowest suicide rates right, of occupations in the country. Right. Why? Mm -hmm. The argument was is that because you could see the kind of the end game, you could see the the fruits of your labor, so to speak, at the you know when you, a project was completed, and that meant something into long term kind of say mental health. To see yeah. that happening built into our into this kind of community project would be amazing. So I, I don't mean to derail the, the, the discussion, but it just no, seems no, good. absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I feel like you, as they say, when you fight, you win, and we have to keep fighting, <clears throat> and. One of the big lessons, I think, from from the left view of history is that you know nothing's fixed, in you know forever. Nothing's eternal. Nothing's natural. Exactly, everything is contingent on the forces. If you get the forces together right in the right way, you can make a difference. And 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 frankly, while the problem we've been talking about this kind of school buildings finance problem is so ornate and um, complicated and hard to hold in mind, and even hard to imagine. Or even it's hard to imagine spending time imagining what it would be like to change it. Um, at the same time, the the sort of like contingent forces of history like have actually acted on this space too. So just the example of the Green New Deal of school, for schools is one, but you know another. There's a whole other realm. So that's fiscal policy. So going back to um, going back to uh, Ben Stein and and fiscal policy and monetary policy. You know, fiscal policy is one thing, which is where the, the federal, the government through um, its tax appropriations, um, you know, will spend. Well, actually, if if you believe in monetary, monetary, monetary theory, it's not through tax appropriations, but the the, the, the government will spend and um, and th that money in spending is sort of a grant. It's in the form of a grant. So you just give you the money to spend it. But there's a whole other realm um, of policy, which is monetary policy uh, that has largely to do with credit. And the way that credit works, and um, there are also just just as there are monetary um, ways in which we can imagine the system to be different, in terms of how we can disperse grants, like in the case of the Green New Deal for schools at the federal level, 
but actually there, there are green news, news green news deal for schools programs happening at state levels too um, that state candidates are running on and I'm, I'm working with the DSA on, on thinking about that but there's monetary ways in which we can imagine this because and I think that it's really important to th think about the monetary policy too because like I said at the beginning there's this situation temporally where you just need a lot of resources up front somehow yeah. and loans are one of the ways credit is one of the ways in which we do this absent um in, uh, entirely like uh, either centralized or activist um government structure that will just provide you with those resources up front um and and some do okay like there are pay-as-you-go programs at the state level in this country where school buildings just get funded it's not like a loan or anything <laughs> but um, and that's at the state for the district level, but actually the state has to go to the municipal bond market to borrow. So it doesn't, it's not actual in escape. But um, to get to your question about the National Investment yeah. Authority, National Investment Authority is a, what we could call maybe a monetary policy solution to the school buildings finance problem. And the way that this works, I don't know if, just to sort of maybe peg this in something reality so it's not too abstract. You may have heard um, in the last few months, I can't remember when it was, but Biden administration wanted to appoint someone named Saleh Omarova to um, a position in the Treasury and controller, actually, I believe. And uh, during the hearings um, that Saleh Omarova had to, I would say, endure uh, mm -hmm. for this appointment, she'd actually worked in the Treasury Department of Bush administration um, for context. Uh, there were Republican senators, one of which from who's from Louisiana, who said, I don't know whether to call you colleague or comrade. Right. Um, and uh, accused Omarova essentially of being a communist, you know, Soviet agent. Um, uh, yeah. And, and and while and while the Republican uh, colleagues sort of tried to distance themselves from these comments, their own views, their own financial views essentially were just of the same flavor, just not as uh, insipidly uh, dumb. Mm -hmm. um, as that comment. But uh, the reason why, uh, Pat Toomey among them, and I have to say Pat Toomey is a sort of uh, villain in this scenario, in this sort of monetary policy world, and I'll explain in a minute why. Um, you know, what Salio Morova did in the period, um, recent period of her own research, she's been sort of um, active as like a heterodox kind of economist, I guess I'd say. Um, and my understanding of these things is sort of still in formation. So if I'm getting them wrong, I'm sorry to listeners. Um, but w one thing that she has helped research and envision are these kinds of more democratic, um, more public financing approaches, apparatuses, schemes, policies um, in the monetary policy arena. Um, and she worked on something called like like a people's ledger, so you know you have you have public banking, for instance. Uh, that was one of the things that the the Republican senators thought was so terrible. It flipped out, yeah. Yeah, but the, another thing that she's worked on with a guy named Robert Hockett, who's another um, champion of these kinds of um, these kinds of ideas, is this National Investment Authority. And the way that this National Investment Authority would work is essentially you have a kind of independent, um, you know, it, it's sort of in the Federal Reserve sort of area. You have this independent board overseeing an authority that approves and gives out loans directly from the United States' Reserve and Treasury for public infrastructure projects. Okay, And so instead of a school district, like I was describing before, instead of a business officer in a school district having to sell their district on a market like a commodity, they just go to the National Investment Authority and get their loan from there, from a Democrat, you know, like you know, the, the officials would be appointed, I think, in the schemes I've seen. 
Um, and instead of, instead of going to the municipal bond market where it's punitive, you have junk credit rating, you have higher interest rates than like rapacious um, for-profit firms get, um, you have a, 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 whole, a whole entity whose sole purpose is to provide public credit for public infrastructure because that's what we don't have. Like we can say that our schools are public all we want, but when it comes to the actual schools, the school right. buildings themselves, those are private, like they're, they're privately financed and um, we need public credit for public schools. So uh, I got really excited about the National Investment Authority as something to fight for. And the, even the, um, again, going back to this kind of idea about finding hope and excitement within these like huge overwhelming tectonic political shifts, during the pandemic, a huge crisis, the Federal Reserve did something that it had never done before, but it has always been legal, which is it opened a facility or a program to disperse credit to public, local public infrastructure. It was called the Municipal Liquidity Facility. And um, the, the idea behind this facility was to essentially, you know, th there was like, there was like a progressive interpretation of this and a conservative interpretation of this. And um, the conservative interpretation was to backstop the municipal bond market so that none of the those ruling class investors that I described before got all freaked out and take their money out of the thing and tank it, which is what happened in March of 2020. And so the Federal Reserve comes in like Atlas, okay, and holds the whole thing on its back um, so that nobody does that and all the investors feel safe and happy so they continue the, the churn of the finance project there. Um, but the progressive interpretation of this facility, which was absolutely feasible within the limits of this thing that had now been created, was that directly through the Federal Reserve, you could get public credit in principle, okay? In practice, the eligibility criteria were extremely um, narrow. Uh, it's not clear that school districts could actually go to it in the way that I wanted. I, one of my big organizing projects at the time was to fight for, to fight for school funding through the MLF. And, um, uh, but what we know now is that that is not only possible, but is real. We can do that. It's entirely legal. It's in the clause called 133 uh, within within the Federal um, Reserve law. And we can do that. The, the, there can be a public, literally kind of like a public option, you could say. That's what I kept, uh, I kept on hearing, kind of like almost like a postal banking for public schools, right? I mean, kind exactly. of like, th that's what I kept on hearing as yeah. I'm both reading your piece and as you're talking about it now. Yeah, that's it. And it happened and we could do it. And the reason why I kind of like politically speaking, almost in like a Machiavellian sense, you know, I obviously have conversations with people and it's like, we don't want loans at all. School districts shouldn't be taking out loans at all. It shouldn't be an issue of loans. You should just get the money to build the thing and go. But in the system that we have, like that Sarah Quinn and America Bonds describes in this sort of state craft where credit becomes this hinge point where you can try to do things. Monetary policy is an option that I like because the Federal Reserve is this independent body. Okay, yeah. they, it's not like you have to wait until um, a trifecta in the House, the Senate, and and the, and and uh, the presidency, and then you have to hope that the president is clear-eyed enough to do something, and that the conservative Supreme Court won't block it as soon as it's done. You don't have to wait for that. You just have a Federal Reserve through the Treasury. You have a National Investment Authority make these decisions. A public school roof is falling in. We got to fund it. That's it. No question. So it's not a matter of of these um, just virulent conservatives like pat toomey pat toomey the reason why i have a, a b in my bonnet about pat toomey everyone does but particularly my bonnet is um there were discussions about whether or not the mlf the municipal liquidity facility could continue on continue in time maybe it could be um, extended maybe it could be built out and he in that budget negotiation um process 
ensured that it would not um, and, and made it made it he made it his business to make it illegal to do anything like that ever again. Why? He's protecting the ruling class investors. OK, yeah. um, that's why I think that the school buildings finance thing is like class struggle. Like it's right there. OK. <laughs> Um, and because if you create this public, this public financing mechanism, this national investment authority, why did he work so hard to kill it? You know, they, they, um, there's like, what, what you want to do is like expropriate the bondholder class. Like you just, you have to get them out of the picture. You know, it's not that I want to get rid of people, individuals. I want to get rid of like a social structure that chokes, uh, and makes schools toxic and, um, we could, we, you know, under the right political conditions. Now we have the precedent. We have, we know that it's possible, and I think um, we should fight for it. Well, one hundred percent. And I think that you know, and part of us, uh, part of us getting there is one kind of like the work that you're doing. Number one, the organization that is happening on the ground, but actually the pushing on all of these levers through legislative means, through public, and to investigate where are these little cracks that we could potentially kind of open up <laughs> right. right and to turn in kind of a, a different manner and in a way that you know ideally you know leaves those kind of like ruling bondholders and ruling class in general kind of in their own little fiefdom before they even realize that they've lost the ability to control our lives i mean that's how i look right. at it. <laughs> yeah i mean we you know and i think that that's 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 the struggle and i don't have anything against them personally but i don't want my neighbor's kids, I don't want my kids getting sick in our public schools while they send their kids to the private schools and they don't have to worry about exactly. it. Meanwhile, they're making tax-free investment money off the system that prohibits our kids from being into, uh, being into public schools. And it's not in their interest and never would they see it. As their, their financial advisors would never see it in their interest. The politicians that they donate to wouldn't see it. It's not in their interest to have another system um, because it makes the money and that's perverse. It it's is unjust. One hundred percent, David. I can't thank you enough uh, for for being willing to come on tonight. And I kept you longer than I promised, but I mean, like, just I, I'm. I think this is such important work, and I think that these conversations are so kind of essential to be having. And especially when you know, again, I, the link for the link to uh, Toxic Finance and Descent um, Descent Magazine is kind of in the show notes for tonight. I strongly recommend people uh, check it out. Um, you know, and and I, you know, I'll put it this way: it's a it's like a quick read packed with really critical stuff. And Thank like, you. this is, this is what I, I mean. And I said this to you before the show, but this I love about this piece is because it's like, you know, the work that you're doing kind of as an academic, as a, as a movement researcher, kind of like digging into this stuff is like you said earlier on in the show tonight, it's like, you know, look, how can you contribute given the kind of the time and the access and kind of the purpose that you have given your position. And this is absolutely essential then to turn around and to be able to kind of, kind of be talking about this in a way that is going to be kind of accessible and moving that conversation forward is something I can't tell you how much I appreciate. So I appreciate the thank work you. and I appreciate your time tonight. Well, thank you. And, uh, and all the work that you do to, to amplify the voices. And, you know, I, I guess the last thing I'd say is for people to get involved, you know, that's what I want to say um, is like, get, give your plugs, man. Where should people go? Yeah. What, what can they do? Well, you know, it, it, in some ways it depends where you are. Um, for me, I'm involved in the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America of Philadelphia. We have an education justice committee that has a, a school facilities campaign um, that has a Green New Deal element to it, but also um, and other elements. But we're doing all kinds of f fantastic work. There, there's a project I've been working on that actually um, measures the levels of CO2 in classrooms when parents and their kids work together with a detector to measure it in their, using their, in their backpacks. They come back and, and we have, um, you know, we report the results and we, we can show the district, hey, 
there's not enough air circulation here. Um, and, and no matter what you tell us. So we have that now in 11 awesome. schools. We're getting more. The Latvian company that creates the detectors found out about us after the New York Times wrote up one of the parents doing it, Lizzie Rothwell, and they donated more detectors. So um, I think it's a really exciting project. But I would, I would recommend people getting involved. Um, like, you know, go to a meeting. That's what matters. You go to the meeting, you see, and you and then go to the next one. Um, and you, you, you try to get involved with what other people are working on. Um, and that's 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 how these things change. There, there are candidates you know, that I think are really exciting. Paul Prescott, for instance, here in um, on the eastern side of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia is running against Anthony Hardy Williams. He's a he's, he was working class teacher, um, great experience in the movements and the unions. And, you know, he wants this kind of stuff to happen, too. Um, a lot of our movement politicians are very open to this kind of stuff and getting involved with them. You know, Nikhil Saval, Rich Krajewski, uh, Elizabeth Fiedler. Um, and All we have folks we've had on the show, on so this, people want to go check Council, out this. Yeah, right. <laughs> Andrew Brooks, uh, you know, Helen Gim and, and Jamie Gatti. Anyway, like getting involved with these people. Um, you know, the other thing is I write this newsletter where I write all this stuff out, like you're saying, in a weekly basis. Um, and so, yeah, but and I'm always wanting to talk and find out more. Now, I'll tell you this. Uh, if I'll, Here's my teaser for your newsletter is that yeah. you got to go and read about the Bloomberg terminals. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, Just get on over and check out the link <laughs> there. I found People that. People like, like that one way more than I thought they would. Thank holy you. moly, I thought that was freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, David, you, listen, Kevin. man, I, I thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, and out of all the work you're doing, thank you for the work you're doing. And uh, we'll keep on pushing the work out and, uh, and keep it up. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll love to have you awesome. back on in the future, man. Awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Thank you. All right. You got it. Hey, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, thank you so much for sticking around tonight. Links to everything you talk, we've talked about tonight in tonight's show notes. Um, we'll see you Friday, if not before. This is Kevin Mahoney. I'm out of here. See you.